0: Uh, I, I think what I'd, I want to start with is um, bringing your mind back to maybe when you were a student. Uh, I certainly experienced this in other places in life, but most keenly as a student, it might have been because I lived by two axioms. The first was why, if you wait to the last minute, it only takes a minute to do. And the second axiom is I can get an 85%, 100% of the time. I just found that about myself, so... Uh, both of those things cooperated in a pretty deadly combination at times in my life. But there, So I was the sort of student who could find myself praying to the Lord for a snow day because I needed it. I needed, if I only had a few more hours, in other words, there's things that I was about to turn in. And I think we can all identify with this. The deadline is approaching and you're about to turn it in or it's about to be due, whether it's something with work or or all sorts of things, and you're about to turn this in, but you know if, if you could just have a little more time, it would make great effect with what you're about to hand over. I had a time. I was. I went to college in a. Uh, excuse me. In Colorado, so snow days didn't happen. Uh, four years of college. No snow days. Until. And it was my biggest project of my uh, my college career. It was the big thing. You know, the big capstone. Fifty percent of your grade. And I would worked all night because I waited to the last minute. And, you know, you fall asleep on the H key and wake up to six pages of H's. And uh, I remember I prayed, Lord, I need snow. (laughs) And believe it or not, I got a snow day. I couldn't believe it. Now, I am not going to sit here and say the Lord heard my prayer. I used whatever prayer he heard to my advantage. (laughs) Uh, Whatever noble prayer... Conjured the actions of the Lord. I jumped on that thing like you read about. And I got an email, and so there was no class, but the email came across and said, because there's no class today, um, uh, you still have to submit your paper uh, at the designated time of ten 1, hundred hours, but I had no class in front of it, so I had this the entire morning to work on this thing, and it, it made all of the difference. Um, now, I say that to you because I feel... Like this year um, has been a snow day for me. This past year has been a little bit of a snow day of borrowed time, of time where um, that we as a church might have done something um, where we've been given the time to do it, do it and do it better. And I'll say that because it was about this time last year that I was standing up here and I was talking about the independent school. And hey, we might go to the independent school. And I remember very distinctly looking out in the room and seeing enough eyes and faces saying, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound good. But stewardship compelled us to do that. We want to be good stewards with... Uh, the, the money that has been brought to the church for the work of the kingdom and we don't want to just assume an answer. So we said we really need to consider is this of the Lord and is this, is this a, a good thing for the church to, to do in the long term to pick up and move down the street to a, a place where more of us can grow because we've, been, we've validated the limits of this current structure on this current site in, in many different ways. For two and a half years we've been asking this question. And so we looked at at independence. Um, But my sense was, uh, I'm just saying, maybe I'm wrong. My sense was, I don't really think people want to go. I think that's probably true. And even on the team, the team had uh, the whole spectrum of emotions. There were some who were cold, cool on the idea, saying, you're going to have to validate this. This has got to be of the Lord if I'm going to get on board. And There was all sorts on the team. And, and uh, the answer was no. We, I mean, the real answer, I believe, was no. It's not, the right, it's not a good long-term fit for us. But it, it, this is what happened during the process. Somebody said, and I don't know who it was, and I don't even know if it was somebody or if it was just kind of said, which is, um, I'm not sure we're ready to grow, was the words. Which, like, followed me home. Like, we're not ready to grow. And I think those words were right. I think we could have, if, if we had a let's just say a year ago, if we had just woken up one morning and come to this same address, but this address was 12 acres, and the building was twice its size, we didn't have the leadership structure, the discipling structure in place to grow it well. We would have not have grown it well. It would have happened, and what we would have done is we would have grown what we had grown into in the way we do things. And so this past year has been a bit of a snow day on that question to go, how does, how does the Lord want us to grow? And the first question in that is, well, what does the Bible say about church? And so for a year, um, I, have, I and Jeff and, and Terry, we were in the Word um, on this question and reading and thinking and praying. And I, one of the things that's come out is the dearth or limited capacity of spiritual oversight, and the fact in our recommendation to you, which is we need to uh, bring more elders, more overseers, spiritual overseers, into assist in the work of shepherding, which is the sermon. But I want you, I want you to know, the sermon I feel is a submission. It's at the end of having a snow day. This is better than what we were, and it helps us to grow in ways. But I don't think we would have been able to. I saw things. I saw things like you take what was what I believe is a good church and then you, you you numerically increase it without dealing with some really important issues and you turn into thing that something that none of us came to in the first place. Now it's gonna take more than lay elders. I'm not saying that fixes it, but I'm saying that's a first step in this path of growing well, and um, that's, that's why we're studying this. This is the last sermon in, in our month on biblical eldership, and what I wanted to offer you this morning was some thoughts as to, uh, so what, what makes an elder or an overseer? What are the qualifications? Because at some level, this church, uh, if, if we agree and, and choose to call elders, at some level, the fellowship is going to have to have some sense on who to call. And at some level, there's men in the fellowship who have to have a sense on how do I even ask the Lord the question of am I, am I supposed to be one? That's our subject this morning here in 1 Timothy 3. So if you look here, uh, I want to look at verse one by itself, and then we'll we'll progress through. Here's verse one: The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, overseer is a different word than elder in the Greek, but it's the same office. There's, uh, there's kind of a cross-migration of the phrase. So this comes from uh, one Greek word, elder comes from another one, and, but there's verses that use them together uh, so that it, it is ultimately, it's the same office, it's just a different word. But the teaching here is one of aspiration. Here's a saying, if someone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. And I, I point to that because it's the sort of verse you can push through pretty quickly, but I think that it's important to realize that this position um, is something that a person ought to feel called to be part of. It ought to be part, not of a, a worldly, ambitious aspiration, trust me, go find a different one, of, of a spiritual aspiration. Of, I, I, I would, the idea of what, what that is I think I'd like to be that. That needs to be there. I'm saying that because it's not the kind of office that uh, an elder ages into, okay? So the elders of the Church of Jesus Christ are not simply the oldest people in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's not an obligatory mandate that falls on you when uh, the, the beard gets long. That's just not, that's not how it is. This is why... It's being qualified, carefully qualified here. Nor is it something that happens to the to necessarily the most gifted and talented in the flock. So when you're a kid in, in middle school, who gets to pick the team? It's the best basketball player. He is his spot. It's his role. Right best two basketball players start to pick the team. That's not how it is with elders. It's not necessarily that it's the most wonderfully gifted or talented or even the best Christian. That's not it. It is an aspiration. Someone should want to do this, which is, I think, um, I don't think many people want to do it. I didn't want to do it. My whole life, I would have never thought I'd be doing this until I got some spiritual aspiration, which, of which I was ashamed of for several months because it meant I would have had to have left real work. So that God will do that in the lives of some people. It, it should, you should expect to see it. Now, I'm going to look at the, what I want to do is I want to look at the qualifications that follow in verses 2 to 7. And I want to talk about them a little bit. I want you to be attuned to, uh, in these qualifications, for the, th- pay close attention to the things that the overseer needs to be really good at or gifted in. Okay? What is the prerequisite of giftedness? Let me read. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Into a snare of the devil. Now, before we approach this with the question of mind of giftedness or special talents or kind of the overall feel, I want to just, I want to draw a few things out, just teach through a few things, make sure that we all have the same mind here in the text. It does say uh, an overseer, he must uh, be above reproach. That's not before the Lord. There's no one who's above reproach before the Lord. This, the, the saying, and it might even be a heading for all of the qualifications that follow. The saying is, I probably better give you an example this is the easiest way. He should be the sort of person that you don't say like, like yeah, he's a good guy, but whatever that is, right? Yeah, sure, sure, he's good at that, you know, but... In other words, that there's no, there's no apparent vice or obstruction in his life that flavors his personhood. But that's what I, I, I think with above approach. that when you see this person the sin or vice or flaw is not in front the whole time. You can't kind of look around it at the person. And that it, what follows kind of suits that perspective. That's one thing I'd like to say. He must also be able to teach. I want to point to that. Teaching is not simply knowing a lot, right? It's much more than knowing a lot. Um, It is also not simply being able to communicate well. There's some people who communicate very, very well and they don't know a lot. They're dangerous people, okay? And there's people who know a lot, but they can't communicate very well and they're not effective. Someone who's able to teach is someone who knows the word or the subject matter, in this case the word, knows the truth of God and then is able to convey it in a way that matters. That's what it means to teach. It's not a facilitator. Someone who knows the truth of God enough to feel the authority of God, to feel that I know when I will have let God down in this teaching. You have to be able to draw, you have to know the word well enough to draw that line of responsibility to know I have to defend this truth in a room that may or may not know it or get it or that may trail off at times. So you have to be able to see the lie or hear the lie and caringly come alongside, you know, maybe a false teaching or a false mood and, and try to steer it back towards the Lord. That's what it means to teach. That's the second thing I want you to see. And then the third thing, and we, I suppose we could have done this about 12 things, but I just thought there were three worth noting. It says he must not be a recent convert. I find that interesting for obvious reasons. So elders don't need to be old but they certainly shouldn't be young in the faith. Okay, so I suppose it could be someone who's uh, young in age but not young in the faith, but it couldn't be someone who's old in age and young in the faith. You want someone who's going to not forget that they're a sheep also. So those are some ones that I wanted to point to. But here's the question now. Of all, all of this, where's the giftedness? When, when you heard or read the text, where's the giftedness jump out at you? I, is anything unique about this passage? I find what's unique about this passage is the fact that it's so ununique. unique. It's not unique. Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. It doesn't even say gifted to teach. It doesn't say called to teach. Satisfactorily able to teach. Not a drunkard. It doesn't even say he doesn't drink, just to be honest here. Not a drunkard. No vice there not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I mean, if anything is unique in this entire verses, one through seven, to me, it's his aspiration. I gotta be honest with you, I think the aspiration is maybe the only thing that stands out here as being unique because I just don't think it's typically the aspiration of many people. That the fact that he feels drawn and called, that feels unique. But otherwise... It seems like the picture of a good man. In fact, it seems like these would be things you'd want to say about every Christian, doesn't it? I mean, is it real? I mean, maybe with the exception. Although I would love if every Christian were able to teach. I'd say that I wouldn't. I wouldn't slight somebody for not being able to teach. But barring maybe that, barring that one ability which is not elevated as some super ability or some gift, barring that one thing, everything else you'd like to say. I'd like to say every Christian was hospitable. That no Christians were drunkards. That every Christian home was managed well. Where's the giftedness here? There is no giftedness here. God is not Calling overseers based upon giftedness. This is, this is very important for the church to hear and it's very important for those who aspire to be overseers to hear. You do not have to be uniquely gifted. What do you have to be? You have to have no unique vice that gets in the way of the gospel. You have to handle the word of God well and your manner of living cannot obstruct the rest of the fellowship from seeing the truth of God. That's the teaching here. The teaching here is a good man is what it is. It's a good man, it's a good guy. Something you'd say is a good guy, or a good husband, or a good father, good in the workplace, good outside, that kind of you, you run the whole gambit of his existence and all the different touch points of his life, and people would say, Yeah, he's reliable. His boss would say, Yeah, he gets his work done. It's a pleasure having him in the office. The co workers would say, Yeah, he doesn't, you know, he sticks up for us in the right sort of ways and doesn't take advantage. He's honest. His wife would say, I love him. He's a good man. His kids should like him. <laughs> I'm being careful. He's a good man. Yeah, this, so what I see, I, I, I see in our time, especially with YouTube and the ability to see people and our individual infatuation with humans, right? So you may not watch TMZ, but TMZ watches you. And our infatuation with our infatuation with people, oh, this, I mean, so I feel bad for the small church preacher, who's not gifted to preach. He's gifted to love on 50 people. And yet he's got some people in his church who listen to John Piper and David Platt. Who who can do that stuff? And they want him to do that. And I'm here to say the Bible does not demand that he do that. The Bible demands that he love the word and he's able to teach it and that his manner of living does not obstruct the fellowship from seeing Jesus. See, we make a habit, I think, an infatuation of glorifying the man, whereas the church is said make a habit of glorifying the Christ, which makes small of the man. By the way, a plurality of elders is an effort of making small of the man, not large of the man. You got to see that. It's not about talents. To handle the work of the church, right? Has not God given the fellowship, the assembly, the gifts to do the work of the church? He gives the church apostles and evangelists and prophets and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints in the work of ministry. But who does the work of ministry? The saints. You do the work of ministry. It's not about magnetism or charisma, it's not about gifts. Now, you may say, well, yeah, but we want a good preacher. Which is not an evil thing, okay? It is a gift in the church. I would say, well, this is where, and this is very practical, but this is where in in churches, churches hire, call some vocational pastors to say, we want you to dedicate your life and attention to these things because we value them, okay? Okay? And then the church has lay elders who they admire and and are grateful for in the sense that they provide faithful oversight to the work of of the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you see this. Turn the page to 1 Timothy 5. I'll just show you. I'm not saying that here this is, you know, you could do a, a tax form on their employment status here or anything. I'm just saying you should see the watercolor kind of broad brush principle here. So it's a pastoral epistle, which means Paul is writing Timothy, but he does say in the fifth chapter, hey, tell the church this stuff. And he gets to the 17th verse, and he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's a very interesting sentence for me. You can some sentences you can informationally harvest a lot from first of all let the elders who rule well among you be considered worthy of a double honor that means in the church of ephesus there are how many elders multiple elders especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching so there's at least at least excuse me two elders who are at least who are laboring in the preaching and teaching of the word it gives you the impression that there's many elders in the fellowship of Ephesus. But notice here that Paul himself sets aside the preacher as a special capacity that the church would care about. So what I I want you to appreciate, this is where I think it's important, is when we're thinking of calling an elder, We need to think of 1 Timothy 3. A lay elder, 1 Timothy 3. What does God require? That his life is above reproach. That he's able to commend the word of God faithfully in a way that all the ears can hear it. And that those outside the church don't have a beef about him. Okay? And he's mature in the faith. That is the basic qualifications of an elder. Now, when we call a pastor vocationally, so there's a lay elder, I'm a vocational elder. When we call us, then you add a larger job description, and we want them to be gifted here or talented here, that our church needs something there. But that whole job description is over and above the the qualifications for an elder. I just want to make that clear so that as we think and consider, we don't have this gargantuan idea. Just this morning, I was visiting with a friend and thinking about deacons. There's this very humbling thought for a deacon. Stephen was a deacon. Oh my goodness. I mean, I have wept reading the story of Stephen. What a man! What a man. Even though, so the Lord says to him, "Play the man, Stephen." I mean, I mean, I said to the person, "If Stephen walked in this door, I would hand him the pulpit. I would sit, not beneath Stephen, but beneath the Lord working in Stephen. But the qualifications for a deacon are not to be Stephen. They're not. The Qualifications for a deacon. It's a man full of spirit of wisdom. And then the teachings that would follow in verses 8 through 13 here in, in 1 Timothy. And those say that he has to hold on to the mystery of the faith. <laughs> and he has to be a good husband. And he has to, in other words, the Lord knows the fellowship. The Lord knows people and says, listen, God will do much when people are simply Faithful. Now you may ask, how how is this all a a snow day for you? What what is this? I mean, well, this is what I think. I think our church has been missing this. I think our church has been missing faithful, accountable oversight, spiritual oversight in a way that has to be aspired to. Someone has to want it to feel accountable for it. I mean, we've had small groups. We've had many small groups in the church. Uh, I don't know how they're going. I don't know how they're doing. I mean, I may happen to know how they're going, but it is, it's beyond my capacity. But I believe someone with a sense of spiritual oversight ought to know how they're going. And if we were gonna grow, I would say we're not ready to grow until we say there can be spiritual oversight. Sunday school classes, I I never go to Sunday school anymore. There ought to be spiritual oversight about Sunday school classes. The word is being handled. If we're going to grow, we need to grow the oversight. Meeting with members. You know, I meet with every new member of the church. I sit down. I share the gospel. We talk about the gospel. We talk about baptism, the distinctives of our church. Every single couple that comes into the church, I sit down. That's not unimportant. I don't do that because it's my hobby. I do it because I like it. I do like it value it. But it is, I think, responsible. The church can't continue to grow with the pastor doing all of that. And had we a year ago jumped over, uh, we would have grown poorly. Things would have been let go of that should not have been let go of. So I said, I said at the beginning of the sermon series, I said, at the end of this, we're going to ask you, can we ordain lay elders to to assist in the shepherding work of the flock? The motion, and we'll talk about the motion Thursday. There's no vote on this Thursday. It's to discuss the motion. The motion will come back to the church at a later date. But the motion will be that Hokesen Baptist Church recognizes the spiritual leadership of ordained elders, both lay and vocational. It's pretty simple. It's nothing new from what's been being said. But I, I, I encourage you that this is, this is the deep work, the first work that helps us grow well into the future. I got time. When does that happen? Ah, <laughs> well then. If I do have a few more minutes, can I just show you deacons for a second? I'll, get you, I'll still get you out early today. Uh, look at verse 8. Let me just read it. It's so close, and when we correct elders, we will correct deacons as well, because right now, our deacons are serving as elders. I mean, that's really what's happening right now. Ultimately, we're saying, can we have enough oversight in the church to allow the deacons to minister well and uh, with uh, good shepherding remaining? That's what we're saying. Let me read this, though. Verse 8 to 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I like that verse. I would pray that for every believer to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'll try to help. By the way, do you see the elder must be able to teach? I think I would set that beside for the deacon. He must hold on to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, a deacon doesn't need to be able to teach it, but should know it when he hears it. He should get it. It should be his operating system. So that when it's taught well, he should say amen, and if it's taught poorly, he should go, huh? This doesn't sound right. And when he sees it lived out poorly, he should know. It'd be great if he could teach, but what Paul's saying is, is not necessary because the deacon, the deacon and his family are ultimately living their life in and among the families, kind of along the way of life, shepherding them in the way. And so in other words, it's most important that he holds the, the truth of the scripture and the mystery of Christ well so that it's living out of his life because it's kind of an a, a of ministry. It's a ministry of mercy where there's needs, needs seen and, and he, a deacon rightly feels like a first responder. I incidentally think it's interesting. That's why there's teachings about, about his wife there is because they're so embedded in it, you know, that you need them to be equally yoked in their marriage. In the, and I'll close with this picture. I think this picture uh, I don't have a better one. This is the one I have in my mind, but I think it's, it's well served for the church. Ephesians says that the body... The church is the body of Christ, Christ is the head, and I think of uh, elders in the church as living somewhere in the neck, uh, looking up at the head, saying, what do you want us to do? What ought we do, and who are you? That's what elders, I mean that biblical oversight, good biblical oversight comes mostly because the elders are looking up. And I, I see the deacons are also in the neck kind of sitting back to back with the elders looking down at the fellowship saying how are they being cared for? And, and I, I think that's a good image. I think that would be a good healthy image for our church as we grow. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that your word does not abandon us or set us adrift or that you don't call us to do big things and then Say nothing. Father, I pray for our fellowship as we, 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 we wrestle in our own ways with um, who we are now and, and tomorrow, what we, what we do to us. I confess, Lord, uh, that there are many in this town and region who are not in church right now. And so we ought to want to grow. We ought to want to welcome. We ought to be a highly invitational community, Lord. And I pray you would make us more that way. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us a confessional spirit when we see that we're not. Or that when we hold on to church, uh, so that it's personally comforting, even though it may be isolating to the fallen. Likewise, however, Lord, I know you want the saints to mature in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not let go of the need, the careful way of growing in order to mature so that we just grow numerically, Lord. May that never be said of us. We give this to you, Father. We pray that our slowness on this topic, the snow day that you've given us, Lord, um, will ultimately allow us to present to you a better church. Knowing full well that it's Christ who makes us without spot or any other blemish. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.